Welcome to the second episode of the Legal Gist Podcast, a podcast that gives you the gist of the journeys of diverse legal leaders and provides insight on how to navigate your own legal journey. My name is Giselle Valdez, and I'm a rising 2L at Columbia Law School. I founded at the Legal Gist as an online platform on Instagram and TikTok to increase accessibility and diversity in the legal profession by sharing affordable pre-law resources and guides. This podcast is made possible by the Davis Polk Leadership Initiative at Columbia Law School. For our second episode, I am so excited to feature the first Latina and Latino editors-in-chief of Columbia Law Review, Liliana Saragossa and Jeff Rivas. Tune in to the whole episode to hear about how to get on Law Review, the process to becoming EIC, the importance of diversity on Law Review, and their incredible professional experiences. Here are their brief bios. Liliana Saragossa is an assistant professor of clinical law at the University of Minnesota Law School, where she will be launching the law school's Racial Justice Law Clinic in fall 2022. Prior to joining the U, Liliana served as an assistant counsel at the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, LDF, where she worked on federal civil rights litigation and appeals in the areas of political participation, education, and policing in the criminal legal system. Previously, Liliana was a John Payton Appellate and Supreme Court Advocacy Fellow at LDF and a Skadden Fellow at the New York Legal Assistance Group. She represented domestic workers in federal and state employment cases. As a Payton Fellow at LDF, Liliana co-wrote numerous amicus briefs before the U.S. Supreme Court. Liliana also served as a law clerk to Judge L. Felipe Restrepo on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit and to Judge Victor Marrero in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. Liliana is a 2013 graduate of Columbia Law School, where she was the first Latinx editor-in-chief of the Columbia Law Review the director of the Society for Immigrant and Refugee Rights, and a proud member of LALSA. Liliana received her AB in International Studies and Human Rights with honors from the University of Chicago. Liliana is originally from Tucson, Arizona, and resides in Minneapolis. She loves to bake, cook everything from Thai curry and pad thai to her homemade flour tortillas de Sonora, run, bike, hike, and enjoy the outdoors, and spend time with her family, including a dog, cat, and three chickens. Our second guest is Jeff Rivas. He is a rising 3L at Columbia Law School and the current and first Latino editor-in-chief of the Columbia Law Review. Born in Brooklyn, New York, Jeff spent his formative years in a small rural town in the Dominican Republic. Jeff moved permanently to New York when he was six years old as his parents sought to expand the opportunities available to him and his older brother. Jeff falls in the footsteps of his mother, who was a lawyer in the Dominican Republic. While law school is not always in the cards, Jeff appreciates the full circle nature of choosing the profession that his mother chose but ultimately sacrificed for a better life for her kids. Graduating from Columbia College as an economics major in 2017, Jeff's sports economics senior seminar piqued his interest in sports and the law. He worked as a tour guide for the New York Yankees for a number of years before law school, where he met players and other prominent sports figures and learned more about legal issues within sports. 
Jeff was an SEO law fellow at Skadden. He returned to Skadden as a 1L scholar and would do a touchback there this summer after spending most of his summer at Kerbath. Jeff loves to bike, exercise, spend time with family, eat, and travel. He is also an avid sports fan. Unfortunately, he has been regularly dismayed by the performance of his New York sports teams. I really want to start this episode with a personal story to really ground your narratives. So for both of you, when you look back at your inspiring legal journeys until now, what is one childhood moment that you look back fondly on and has helped to define your personal identity? Being at my grandmother's house in in the Dominican Republic, I grew up in a very small campo uh, in Juan Lopez and, and, you know, everyone knew each other. And the first thing that comes to my mind, it's not baseball when I think of my childhood, is just sitting in my grandma's house on like one of the beds, any of my aunt's beds. It was a very big family, very open family. So I could literally just hop onto anyone's bed. And uh, when it was raining, it would, it was just this really peaceful, really calming uh, sound of the rain just landing on the zinc roof. And immediately, that's one thing that pops into my head that there's incredible value to appreciating simplicity. And so I'd say uh, when when those tough moments come up uh, and they will inevitably come up, of course, throughout this journey, thinking of those moments and thinking of just being able to sit there and listen to the rain or uh, again, just playing baseball with my cousins and not having a care in the world, I think helps me get, get through those moments. You know, it's funny that Jeff mentions the importance of his mom and his grandma, because um, I think family is such a huge part of, you know, my my fondest childhood memories. And, you know, even though I wasn't only child to a single mother, you wouldn't know, you know, I, I certainly didn't feel lonely. Um, you know, it wasn't just my mom who raised me, but her mom, like my, my tita, my tita's sister, so my mom's aunt, and then my mom's littlest sister, who was my aunt, um, who was also in college at the University of Arizona at the time. So she was so cool while I was in elementary school. Um, you know, and I was raised by four women, which is such a, you know, it's not uncommon in Latinx households or specifically in Mexican American families that it's just like a matriarch, um, you know, matriarchy. And I have so many fond memories of like Univision being really loud, of like taking naps and I'm like, how is Sao looking at this still on? It's been going on all day. Um, <laughs> you know, all of these loud, boisterous, joyful things. Um, but specifically, I remember them um, sitting on the couch and like cheering for me when I would sing you know, anything from Spice Girls and Selena to specifically, there's a video recording of no scrubs. <laughs> um, but I really thought I was gonna be a performer. I thought I was an excellent singer based on their reaction. And I know that I'm not an excellent singer, but that's how you know the like love and affirmation is palpable. But I think most importantly, like Jeff said, it's really about grounding yourself in what, what drives you and what inspires you. And I know that my family is so critically important. Um, you know, to who I am. No, that's beautiful. And it also reminds me a lot. I was the same. I feel like in a lot of Latinx households, there's always performances going on at the holidays. And it would be the same of singing Selena and our favorite songs um, to my abuelo. So that also brings me back to those times as well. 
I want to start really at the beginning of both of your legal journeys and ask both of you why you wanted to attend law school and specifically why Columbia. I went um, to college in Chicago and I, you know, it took me a minute to figure out what I wanted to major in. Um, and I ultimately majored in international studies and human rights. Um, and, you know, how do you turn that into a career? Um, that was a big question for me. And I did some work um, with Alianza Americas, the National Immigrant Justice Center. Um, I did internships in organizing. And then I also um, did some translating work for U visas and family petitions and immigration. And that's kind of where I was able to get a glimpse into what the law can do. Um, you know, I knew I wanted to work um, for my people. I wanted to work for Latinx people and other communities of color. Um, and frankly, organizing was really hard. <laughs> you know, I, it's, you have to have a lifelong vision. And now I'm kind of coming back full circle in, in terms of working on movement lawyering. We can talk about that later. The law is a practical way that I can, you know, help somebody stay here, that I can help, um, you know, do important things for Latina people. Um, and so I went to law school. And in terms of why Columbia, because, you know, frankly, um, my now spouse and I, you know, looked all over the country and he was going to grad school and we kind of both landed on the East Coast and he applied to grad school first and went to Columbia. And so I applied to New York schools. And I say all of that because I don't, you know, I, I think that there is value in the different reasons that people make choices that they make, right? Like if you have to go to law school because you wanna be by your family, by your future family, because of, you know, because of scholarships, because of other reasons, it's a hugely personal decision. What about you, Jeff? I know we both went to Columbia undergrad. So what made you decide to, to come back and, and why law school? I was an economics major. So, you know, you think Columbia undergrad and economics major, great, fantastic. But I just realized, after, you know, halfway through my junior year, I was like, no, I, I really don't want, economics is cool. I loved during, you know, running regressions and things like that for things that I actually enjoyed, like sports related stuff. Um, but I had chosen it because I just wasn't sure what else to do. And everyone said, well, economics, you go to Wall Street right after if you're from Columbia and you can just make some money and uh, eventually decided that that just wasn't the path that was going to fulfill me. And as, as far as what led me to law school, probably my mentor played a huge deal. Uh, he told me when I was 15 years old, this was a middle school teacher of mine. He was like a second dad, really. Uh, he told me when I was 15 years old that I'd make a good lawyer. My senior seminar was a sports economics seminar, and I took it really only because of the sports aspect. Uh, but that was taught by Professor Sunil Gulati at the time, who was there was taught by Professor Sunil Gulati, who at the time was the president of U.S. soccer. Um, and of course, within U.S. soccer and the U.S. Soccer Federation, the women have been fighting for many, many years to uh, get just pay, right? Equitable pay for their services. And so I think just seeing the rawness and the realness of the conversations, and I, I do give Professor Gulati credit after that, I was like, okay, well, I want to work in sports. I want to do something in sports. I can no longer be a baseball player. Um, so I, I wanted to do some sports work. And so I just went on Teamworks Online, found this cool gig with the Yankees as a tour guide and 
took it and started learning a bit more about the industry itself, the sports industry, uh, started reflecting really on my childhood, my upbringing, reflecting on all that and hearing the experiences of players that I met as I was a tour guide at Yankee Stadium, uh, realizing that minor league baseball players here are treated not great, to say the least. There's no one answer for me. It's just sort of like these different pieces coming together and me sort of thinking, okay, there came a point where I was just like, if I don't apply now, I'm never going to apply. Let's check this out. It's so interesting to hear both of your stories and kind of the differences in what your motivations were to apply to law school, but then how you kind of end up at the same place and both end up then on law review. So I wanted to shift and, and ask both of you to really give a layout of what the process to be on law review looks like. Um, so I'd like to start with you, Jeff, on this and, and ask you, why did you decide to apply to be on Columbia Law Review? And can you briefly explain the process of applying called Write On? So I'll start very briefly with the process because we thankfully just wrapped it up. Um, so as far as Write On, uh, at least nowadays, I think it may have been different um, back uh, when Liliana was EIC. Uh, but nowadays you get two weeks to complete the write-on, which consists of a pretty you know, lengthy fact pattern with many different sources of law from cases to uh, you know, rules, federal rules, for example, secondary material. Uh, and your goal is to, at least on the the issue spotter portion, I'll call it, the, the actual sort of analysis of a legal issue or two, your goal is to use those different sources to sort of make an argument. In many ways, I say this is probably the most uh, familiar part to one else of the write-on component, um, because it can be sort of like a an exam type and you're getting a fact pattern and you analyze it ideally and uh, you pick a side, make an argument and cite to different sources. There's also a citation exercise component to it, uh, to, the, to the write-on and you're given different citations or you're asked to cite to different sources, um, whether it be sort of a website or uh, a, a law review article type thing, and you're given different rules. Uh, the rules are made up, so <laughs> studying the blue book beforehand uh, should not be anyone's priority uh, in any way. So you're given different rules and you're asked to apply those rules to uh, correctly cite these different sources. Um, and then actually this year we added something, we added a little twist to it, uh, to, to the citation exercise, we called it the substantiation exercise, and we can get further into that. Um, but the citation exercise for us is meant to be more of a technical sort of, can you apply a rule type thing? Whereas the substantiation exercise is really looking to evaluate um, whether applicants can use their judgment to determine whether a source actually supports an author's statement, for example, which is a lot of what you're trying to do uh, with, within the law review. So that is overall the process. That's a very high level. There's also different components beyond the write-on, of course, uh, including a personal statement where you get to share more information about yourself with us. Going back to 
the why law review for me um again it, it was almost on a whim it i had no idea what law review was i had no idea what journals were when i came to law school but i am also someone who has tried to keep as many doors open as possible open and then when it came to the law review it frankly was just having conversations with the three L's that just graduated and they told me listen uh it's rigorous it's challenging it's the law review though and and quite honestly like let's i will be transparent here there was a the, the prestige element for me was one of those things where they told me listen it's the law review and it was one of those things where i wanted to challenge myself and with the law review i just thought this is my one chance to do it to apply what's the worst that can happen i don't get on but i don't think about it for the rest of my life i don't think about what could have been uh, liliana what why did you decide to join law review and we'd also be curious i think the listeners to hear what is the process to become editor-in-chief of Columbia Law Review? The first why as to why, you know, why did I apply to Law Review? Um, my answer is very similar um, to Jeff's in part, um, but, you know, to be completely honest, I had no idea what it was. Um, I, you know, my mom and I were, are my only family members who were in the United States, and I'm the first person to go to the law school in the United States. I didn't know, you know, one L. I was, frankly, super depressed. You know, I didn't, I was so good in college and 1L just threw me for a loop. I did not know, you know, like how to take these exams. It felt like it was a very different kind of academic environment than I was used to. Um, but I found my people in the Society for Immigrant and Refugee Rights and LASA and public interest folks. And there was one person on SIR, um, Shout out to Professor Faiza Syed now at Brooklyn Law School, but who was on Law Review and she was a, um, a year above me. And she was like, do the write-on at a party on a weekend. <laughs> and I was like, what's the write-on? And she's like, just do it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and I am, I kid you not, I had no idea what Law Review was even when I was doing the write-on. Um, but I did it um, and I was like, this is kind of fun. That brings me to YEIC. So for me, you know, once I was on Law Review and I didn't fully understand like Jeff did the importance of Law Review when I was initially applying to get on, but once I was on Law Review and I saw all of the resources and the way that firms and other places would court you and the way that professors who were submitting pieces to the Law Review who want you to publish their pieces, they, you know, treated us with such, you know, great esteem and respect, but also all of these opportunities suddenly presented themselves. Um, and it was just like I had gone, you know, through the looking glass and it was completely like this incredible privileged world, even within law school. You know, one, I, I'm doing this really well <laughs> as a staffer and I really enjoyed writing my note, um, you know, and there were things like that. But I also had a really encouraging um, EIC who wanted to see a woman of color, you know, EIC who was like, you're one of our best staffers, like, please apply. And so the process when I was there was an application process. You know, you had to select into being EIC. Um, and then it depended on whether you got published. Um, you know, you, you were only eligible if your note was selected for publication. And then the staff the year above you, you know, discussed all the people who want to be EIC and pick one. But I wanted to be EIC because I 
knew that I saw how the Law Review had opened so many doors, was seen as like a huge gold star on my resume. And honestly, even recently um, in my job application for being a professor, they cared about it so much, you know, more than a decade later, they still care about that so much. Um, and it's a really big deal. I think for a lot of positions that I have applied to in my life, the Scadden Fellowship, clerkships, it has mattered that I was um, on Law Review and then also the EIC. So I looked to, I wanted to become the EIC to open doors for other people of color, to make some policy changes because I saw this is an incredible pipeline um, to, you know, to incredible opportunities. And to the extent that it might have been um, less accessible for folks like people of color in the past, um, I wanted to do whatever I could to try and bring people in, people from oppressed groups. And this was really inspiring and thank you for showing kind of your motivations about opening doors. Could you briefly explain for our audience what a note is? Basically a legal article. So it's a scholarly article um, about a topic of your choosing. And, you know, I did a circuit split kind of note. That's one kind of note. And you can talk about any sort of issue of law that's interesting and new. So it has to be on some issue out there that somebody else has not written about, which to me sounded like impossible at the time. <laughs> but one of the easiest ways to do it um, was by looking at circuit splits out there. So where circuit courts disagree and the Supreme Court hasn't ruled on something yet. And so for me, I looked at, I looked for immigration related circuit splits. My, my topic was just, I again, running on the theme of sports. I wanted to write something sports related. Um, and I had these broad ideas uh, that I wrote down, reached out to different professors uh, some of whom responded, others didn't. So don't be discouraged by that either. Um, and, and they were really helpful in helping me reframe certain issues. And um, I simply ended up going with a case that had been recently decided by the Supreme Court last June, actually, um, 2021, uh, NCAA v. Alston. And it was a pay for, for euphemism is pay for play. Um, but uh, I, I I just picked a topic, broadly speaking, that I was interested in, and then I went from there. Both of you have really spoken about the importance of mentorship. I know both of you have spoken that you wouldn't have known what law review was if it wasn't for someone older than you telling you and explaining that process to you. And I think especially as first-generation attorneys, Latina attorneys, that process of mentorship is so important in thinking about your identity and your space in law review. Um, so one thing I really wanted to touch on is looking back to, you know, your identity and how did identifying as a Latina, as a Latino, inform or guide your experience as EIC? What were the challenges? I guess I'll speak very quickly on something Liliana touched upon with why EIC, for example, and how my identity played into that. Uh, I, again, I sort of, I feel like I'm, I'm, half the time I'm walking around clueless because I was not thinking of applying to ad board. It wasn't until actually uh, the outgoing EIC uh, Shin who, who reached out to me and he was like, Hey dude, like, can we talk? And I was like, okay, sure. This must mean decent things. Um, but I was really just focused 
um, just doing the best job that I could as a staffer um, and trusting that process. It wasn't like I was thinking about uh, the, 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 as Liliana was very aware, for example, I, I think I thought about the power of law review beforehand. Once I actually started, I was just like, all right, I'm going to do the work and hopefully help make these citations a little bit better. And uh, we'll see from there. Uh, once I actually got that email though from Shin and once I started speaking to my friends I I realized that it was just a lot bigger than me that in many ways and and this is a this is simply a personal choice because I, I don't think we all need to sort of take on like this burden right of our communities and 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 just because none of us have done it before like if we if you have that chance no i think that's a personal choice right if you feel like it would if you don't if, if that's not what motivates you if you don't have the bandwidth then don't do it but for me i just thought to my younger cousins who who are who who all arrived from the dominican republic on my mom's side within the last 10 years and you know they would have no idea they still don't have any idea what the uh what law review is what law school is but just something about being the first Latino, right? Following Liliana's footsteps. I like even Googled Liliana. Liliana didn't tell you this, I don't think, but I, I like Googled this immediately right away because I was like, there couldn't have been too many of us. Like, and so I like looked it up. And even before I, I interviewed, I was just like, wow, Liliana's the only one. And so um, I think for me, it's just, identity inevitably plays a, a massive role because it is showing that these artificial ceilings that are placed on us on our communities you can right that they, they are they are there they are socially there right in many ways there are these like ceilings that i'd say so artificial maybe the the wrong term but you can do it you can break through it in many ways and and hopefully like I can just be one example and I can then use my platform to to affect some change to make this a little bit more accessible for people like us. Thank you for sharing. It's such a powerful story, as you said, breaking those ceilings um, and representing the community so powerfully as both of you have. And it just goes to show, you know, the power of representation, I think, in this role. Liliana, could you speak to your experience as a Latina, as the first Latina editor-in-chief of Columbia Law Review? Could you speak about the role of diversity for you and, and how that guided your experience? And why do we need diverse voices on Law Review? I'll touch on the uh, the part about the experience of being the first um, a little bit first, because I will say that I've, you know, I've had the pleasure of talking to Jeff before today and it sounds like it's a you know a really different environment in a good way I think than than when I was on Law Review I think it was mostly really positive and there were a lot of public interest people and there were people like FISA or the EIC before me Maren who were really supportive I'm sure we've all had the experience where um you know we have to be like um you know there's a saying about having to be twice as good um but also you mentioned being a representative for your people. Like it's not a burden that any of us should have to bear, but at the same time, right. I'm like, I, I can't fail. <laughs> and so there was a lot of um, pressure and you know, I slept very little and it was a lot of hard work, 
but I made sure that if it was going to be that hard, um, you know, and if, if I had to carry that burden, that it was going to be for good. Right. And it was, and for that reason, I, I wanted to work on, um, kind of breaking down the structural racism and bias that exists in everything, including on the law review. Right. Um, and so that's, that was kind of like one of the major causes. And thankfully I had an exec um, team who totally agreed with it. Um, and so for that reason, we created the first diversity editor. You know, what does that even mean? <laughs> you know, you're not editing something on paper, but, um, but you know, we, what we wanted was somebody who was intentionally um, doing the work, right? Who was tasked with figuring out like, okay, what can we do better? Um, even if it is, you know, as Jeff mentioned, sometimes it feels like it's small stuff, but there hadn't been like individual lunches with each affinity group, right? Where we were like, come to Little Warren, come check out the space. So it's not this scary space. Come ask us anything, you know, like no really ask us anything and we'll be honest. Expanding the length of the write-on and now it's even longer. I think when I first did it, it was three days, but realizing that people have jobs and other, you know, potentially familial responsibilities and that not everybody is going to be able to, you know, do a write-on in two or three days immediately after finals. And so, even just expanding that time, right, would be, um, you know, potential accommodation for all of the different things that people have going on in life and in turn could help people who, you know, often people of color, I know I was low income, right, like people of color who have to go start their job, you know, hopefully this way by expanding the length of the right on by taking a bunch of steps we could make sure that the review um, was more representative, that there were um, people of color, LGBTQ plus people and other oppressed peoples on the review. Thank you for sharing, you know, the establishment of, you know, the diversity editor position. It's so inspiring to hear how those steps to increase diversity and representation and how you, you know, despite having to deal with being the first, right? And, and the burden that you said that that can create you still took those substantive steps to really change representation in the law review. So thank you for your work in doing that. If you were to think of one highlight moment or favorite aspect of your time in CLR, what would that moment be? I, I smile because this one comes to mind immediately. Um, and I actually got roasted for it by Professor Glass, who is my, my 1L property professor at the, uh, at at the banquet, at uh, CLR's banquet, she was the Toastmaster and she was roasting me without knowing it. And so it's very funny because after she came over to sit down at the table and I'm like, oh, you know, we got to do dinner now for a couple hours, huh? Um, but it was, uh, it was this one moment uh, when we, during orientation, obviously we had this incredibly jarring, uh, incredibly difficult remote, one L year. And we were able at that point to actually go check out Little Warren. And that was really for the most part for many of us, that was like our first exposure to uh to to campus to, you know, not for me because I had been there, but um for many, for many students, that was really the first time where it was like, okay, there's this possibility that we're going back to in person, things will be a little bit more normal. Um and so I remember 
I was with a friend of mine, one of my my best friends, um, you know, in general, but she's also on the Law Review, Chris Nor. And we were just wandering around Little Warren, just lost around Little Warren. And we stop on the fifth floor and we see all the old uh, reporters, the, the U.S. case reporters. And of course, I think, you know, now, of course, like all the research is done on Westlaw and Lexus and online platforms. And so for, for us, I, I confess, I think I was the one who started the conversation, but I was just like so flabbergasted that there were like these cases and like these reporters, if you go check them out, like some of them, like the spine is like breaking, like deteriorating type thing. Um, and I was like, wow, this is so cool. I think that was my first moment where it was like, this is this is law review, you know, like this is at least the history of law review in many ways, right? Like you have these old books. And so uh, I, I looked at Chris and I was like, do you think we can find international shoe? And so <laughs> we went online and found the citation for international shoe and then proceeded to go through the shelves and find the volume. I think it's like 326, if I remember correctly, um, in the US reporters and flipped to the page. And sure enough, it was like, wow, that citation actually works. So somehow it was like this validating thing that, okay, this is actually real. Like you're not just typing into like the ether of like online, the online world. Like this is, you know, this is real in some, in some sort of uh, odd way. Um, and, and I always share that story. I got roasted for it. And then I had to explain to, uh, judge Chen for, of the, uh, of the second circuit for like 30 minutes, they couldn't understand why I found it so, so fascinating, but then eventually they did. And for them, it was, it's a generational thing. Like for them, it's like, yeah, well, that was, we grew up with that. And for us, it's like, at least for, 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 for us now, it's like, well, we grew up with Westlaw and I'd never seen one of those. So I always share that story. It's just, uh really cool story and um in many ways i say it's it, it reflects my view of uh of, of law reviews you know just fun nerds i think i said or just nerds who like to have fun type thing we were just there and uh obviously we work hard but we just found that hilarious for whatever reason thanks for sharing that that fun story and international shoe immediately takes me back to my classes so it's right fresh in my memory uh, what about you, Liliana? Yeah, so I know I'm a nerd, but wow, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I, no, I don't have that experience. I mean, I have a lot of fond memories of, like, I, I think I alluded to it, a lot of karaoke. So it was nice that it was work hard, play hard. I think, you know, you bond through just, um, frankly, a lot of work um but i you know i two things briefly stick to mind one of which was at our banquet um i think this was right after i had gotten elected eic um donald verilli the former solicitor general um came to our banquet the day of or the day after he had argued the affordable care act case at the supreme court and we were and i was just like why are you here? <laughs> you know, like you just, like, it was incredible that he, you know, that it was something that was important enough, right, for him to take the train from DC after Supreme Court argument and come to the Columbia Larview banquet. And I was just like, 
wow, like this really does seem to mean something to people, right? Because I was still figuring that out while I was on law review. Like that, that's wild. Um, and then the second thing is just that law review had a retreat back in the day. I don't know if you still do that, Jeff, but out in the Catskills, and it's a lot of fun. But um, so I, like I said, I am nerdy. We were playing Settlers of Catan. Um, and there was some ambiguity in the rules. Like, I, I don't know, like the game broke down because like two articles editors started arguing about what would have to happen next. Like there, like there was a gap in the rules for Settlers of Catan. And then they just started like, making their case for like what to do and everybody else left but (laughs) like they ruined the game because they were like you know like we're the people you can't take us anywhere (laughs) so now that you've shared really your journey through law review I want to now look and, and talk about how that experience was formative and then deciding your your future career in law. And I know Jeff, you're still in law school and you're working during the summers, but I'd love to start with Liliana and really talk about the Columbia Law Review experience and how that influenced then your journey to do a clerkship. And what is your advice for students who are interested in a clerkship? Clerking is one of those things where I also didn't know what it was, why to do it, um, but, and, you know, during and after the fact, I was like, this all makes sense now. Like why, um, you know, why it's given so much importance, um, like law review. Um, and that's that you just, like for me, the law really came to life once I was clerking, right? I did a district court clerkship and I did an appellate clerkship. And, you know, the like the federal rules of civil procedure didn't make sense to me. You know, like they kind of, you know, they were very abstract until I did that district court clerkship. And then I saw it come to life. It's like, wow, like this all suddenly just like clicks, Um, you know, and then even just appeals, right? That all came to life once I did the appellate court clerkship. Um, And for me, in terms of its connection to law review, right? I think that I'm sure it's possible. Of course, people get um, clerkships without having been on law review. Of course they do. But for me, right, again, being completely honest, because, you know, if students are listening, like I had no problem being completely forthright, right? My grades were okay. Um, I, but I was the EIF Law Review and I had a published note, right? And so that really helped me get a foot in the door in terms of, um, you know, looking for clerkships. And part of that is because, you know, judges know that you are coming um, in with a certain set of competencies, right? Like you can blue book really well, but you can also, you know, I got a note published, like I can write and judges need to know that they can trust you. Um, because you know, there's a lot going on. It can be pretty high stress. Um, you might have like actual trials. Um, you know, these are real cases with real people and they, and your the judges want to know, that they can trust you to analyze whatever legal issues are in front of them that impact the real world. Thank you for being so transparent and forthright, because I think with a lot of these things like clerkships, there's a lot of barriers to access and entry, and there's all this vocabulary. And thank you for sharing, you know, for you, why you think law review helped and supplemented that process to getting a clerkship and why even doing a clerkship. 
Um, moving from your clerkship experience, I know a lot of our listeners would love to hear about what it was like to work at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And if you could maybe talk about that experience broadly and then a, a highlight career moment for you or matter um, during your time at, at LDF. So I was at LDF for almost five years total, and it still hasn't sunk in that I'm not there yet since I just left about a week ago. And it's very bittersweet. And I know that I'll see my colleagues, but um, but it was um, incredibly wonderful. It was a lot of hard work. <laughs> you know, it was definitely a lot, um, especially because fighting anti-Blackness and the fight for racial justice is always incredibly difficult in the United States. But I think it's fair to say that the last five years have been really trying. <laughs> when I first went to LDF, I went as a John Payton um, Appellate and Supreme Court Advocacy Fellow. And so what that means, especially for folks who are looking at fellowships, is, um, you know, it's not exactly an entry-level fellowship, but if you're about like two years out of law school, um, and if you're doing public interest, it'll be familiar to you that you're going to have to do fellowships upon fellowships. Um, but this one allowed me to do like dip my feet into some litigation, but I wrote a lot of amicus briefs at the Supreme Court. So I got to kind of hone those writing skills and, you know, file things at the Supreme Court. It was pretty amazing. Um, and I actually did that before clerking. And so then I clerked for a couple of years and I came back to LDF as assistant counsel. And, you know, I have, I mean, I litigated everything from a case against the state of Alabama for their photo ID law for voting. Um, I had a couple of school desegregation cases. Um, we have a lot of cases that are, um, you know, that have been under orders since the 60s and 70s. I worked on some investigations and advocacy around the NYPD's um, racist gang policing policies. So they'll label mostly um, young boys and men of color as gang members and they're on a database. Um, but then, you know, in the last couple of years, you know, as we all know, there's been, there was the pandemic and then Breonna Taylor was murdered, George Floyd was murdered, there were uprisings. So we were facing multiple disasters in terms of racial injustice across the country. And so we were already working really hard at LDF, but it was definitely different, right? I was litigating 17 hour days in 2020. And I think we all were because we knew it was, you know, different times. I'm really glad that I was at LDF though, during that time, at least being able to be at LDF and being able to do something was in incredibly rewarding um, and important. And in terms of a highlight, um, so, you know, we were lucky enough to be able to be responsive to both of, you know, both the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd, and then also the brutalization of protesters. So I was part of the team that sued the um, city of Philadelphia um, for tear gassing and terrorizing protesters, but also residents in West Philly. And then um, I think the biggest highlight, I mean, all of these are incredibly important cases and I'm just so grateful to have gotten a wealth of experience at LDF across a variety of issue areas, but also just being able to be like in the trenches for racial justice. But I do have to say one highlight was, um, I was part of the team that sued the state of Alabama for having really restrictive absentee voting requirements and for not allowing curbside voting. Um, 
during their primary and this was early in the pandemic before we knew you know like distancing was important masking was important um you know we had primaries where people where there were really long lines right and there were surges in covid cases and so we sued the state of alabama and i um was the person responsible for working with our epidemiologist who had to explain to the court, like, what even is COVID-19, right? Why is it dangerous? Like, why would it have a disparate impact on Black people? Like, what, why, why would that be the case, right? Um, why would people with pre-existing conditions be threatened? And why, what does this have to do with voting, right? Like, why is in-person voting dangerous? And so working with the epidemiologists to really set the stage for why we even have a case, right? Why are we, why is this a voting case, right? If this is about a virus, you know, that we just didn't totally understand at the time. And so it was, you know, both like intellectually challenging, but it also felt like the stakes were so high, um, right? There were people who were actually getting really sick and dying of COVID-19. And one of our clients, um, who we represented Howard Porter, who had Parkinson's and high blood pressure, um, his sister and uncle passed of COVID-19 um, you know, and his uncle had passed before we even had trial. And so like the stakes felt really high to get all of this evidence right, to do justice at trial. And so I had to get the science right. <laughs> and, you know, that was a really incredible opportunity. And, um, and I'm glad to say that we won at trial. And sadly, we lost um, ultimately at the Supreme Court, our uh, permanent injunction was stayed, um, but we had an incredible dissent by Sotomayor and there were a couple of weeks where our decision was good so that people were able to vote without the more restrictive absentee requirements and were able to use curbside voting. Um, so I know now you're starting a career in academia um, now that you're moving from the public interest career at LDF. What is your advice to a student interested in a career in legal academia if you were to give them, you know, a piece of advice on pursuing that pathway? So I'm, I'm going into academia, but I did want to share that I'm going to be a clinical professor. Um, and I raise that because I'm lucky enough to continue to practice, right? I enjoy practicing. I enjoy litigating and, um, you know, writing appellate briefs, arguing. I enjoy all of that. And I um, want to continue to do that. but um, I have always been very passionate about mentoring other people and just, um, you know, as you mentioned before, Giselle, um, that FISA was my blueprint <laughs> and there were mentors, you know, Jeff had mentors, I've had mentors throughout my whole life. Um, but it was always something that, you know, I would mentor people at LDF, but also at LALSA and like, you know, so Columbia folks, you Chicago folks, and you know, it, it's a lot and it's an important part of my life and what I want to do. But what's really exciting about this position as a clinical professor is that I get to do mentoring as part of my job. Um, and I also get to teach people skills about how to be a lawyer. So I will be teaching a seminar where I hope to teach um, critical race theory and, you know, how to be a movement lawyer and also, um, but also practical skills. And in a way that I think I wish I had learned in law school. I look forward to kind of demystifying what it is to be a lawyer and that a lot of it is, you know, 
figuring it out and <laughs> charting new territory and that that's okay. Right. So I hope to just make the practice of law and to make law school more relatable, um, just in the same way that we've been talking the whole evening, right, about making the law review more accessible and more relatable. I, I know law school itself can be alienating and the practice of law can be alienating, particularly to students of color. And so part of why I want to be a professor is to continue to do that work of supporting young people and demystifying the process um, and being a professor. In, um, in terms of, you know, recommendations to other folks, um, you know, that depends. If you want to be a clinical professor, you, you can practice, right? Like you don't have to change anything about what you want to do if what you want to do is practice, right? Because that practice itself is valuable in terms of teaching future generations. If you want to be um, like a doctrinal professor, then you've got to publish. <laughs> then you've got to at least write um, something. But I did learn throughout this process, and I think that's worth sharing out there, that you don't necessarily have to publish before going on the market. Um, so you can have ideas in your head and have what's called a working paper. So you can start working towards something. And, you know, for our listeners, you know, once you get to law school, there's the opportunity to participate in, in clinics and something that as a 1L, you usually don't have the opportunity to. And next year, I'm excited to be in a clinic and looking forward to that. So that's something to also look forward to as well in your law school journey. But thank you for sharing for those interested in academia, what that process can be like because you know it needs demystifying, um, especially for diverse individuals. Um, so Jeff, I know you were interested in sports law. We've talked about in the private sector, and I know we are also both SEO law fellows. Which our last episode with Vanessa, she was also an SEO law fellow and is now a partner at Davis Polk. Um, so there's also that community. I always like to give a shout out to SEO for the work they do. What would be your advice for pre-law and law students who are interested in working at a corporate law firm, particularly diverse students? So I think you hit it right on the nail to start, uh, apply to SEO law, um, to the fellowship program. Uh, the, the Very briefly, for those that may not know, um, the fellowship program includes, uh, at least for us, it may have been a, a bit different given the pandemic, but it was a two-week sort of uh, boot camp to at the start of the summer on sort of all things one L year or as much as you could get in two weeks uh, of one of, of L year. And so you took mock classes, exams, things like that. I was placed at, uh, at a law firm for six weeks. And uh, I think the program, if you know you wanna get into corporate law, uh, the, the program is incredibly beneficial because you, have this experience before you even start law school, uh, you can work on really cool cases. I worked on a number of pro bono matters, uh, U visa cases, which were incredibly, incredibly empowering. So, so I think it's a huge advantage that the program provides in that sense, because you start making this, these relationships. And at the end of the day, a lot of uh, our career paths I, I, I'm starting to notice is about relationships and um, who can vouch for you and whatnot. And so for me, it was one of those things I was placed at the firm. I, you know, clearly produced competent work while there. And 
So I think that's a great start, of course, the SEO Law Fellow uh, program. I think just talking as well to the to 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 the people above you as far as two L's, uh, three L's is is very, very important. Uh, just because you get a sense of what works for different people leverage those resources right and and i know it's tough and i know that i'm still learning to reach out to people actually when they because it still feels like i'm bothering people instead of instead but definitely like reach out and and ask those questions i know we've spoken about your interest in sports law which i think is so interesting and you know your previous experience you know, working in sports as well. What is your advice for anyone interested in that space? Do you plan to pursue sports law in the corporate world as well? Yeah, I think as I see it, my ultimate goal is certainly to go back to that and to um, help the the young boys who uh, are being, I think, in many ways deceived by uh billionaires. Um, and so I think at the end of the day, my ultimate goal is to return to sports um, in in some capacity. What that is, we'll see. I mean, I've always had a dream of being a sports agent. Uh, so so we'll see. We'll see about that. I'm, again, keeping an open mind. Um, as far as sports law and corporate law, I do think, at least with that, and, and one thing I always heard, and you might hear as well, is that there is no such thing as, as sports law. At least I definitely remember hearing that during my SEO law fellowship. It's just sort of one area of the law as it applies to sports. Um, I think the more I learn and the more I speak with people who would consider themselves sports lawyers, I do think there is an area that is sports law. And sure, it is still these different areas of law, whether antitrust law or uh, IP law as applied to sports. But I think the sports industry itself is so unique in many ways that um, it's a it's it's a disservice to not acknowledge some of those peculiarities um, of, of the industry. Uh, I think if you're, again, just passionate about it, Speak to different people, uh, reach out to me, reach out to anyone. I mean, you'll you just note as well that if you're going to go the corporate route, uh, note that some some firms are specifically known for being sports law firms or having strong sports law practices. Uh, and so that's something to to bear in mind as well. Uh, that certainly figured prominently for me in my 1L decision. Uh, just wanting to be at a place where I thought, you know, this is a firm that's known for its, uh, for having sports law clients. Um, I obviously, yeah, I'm still learning and I'm still keeping an open mind as far as where the road, this road takes me. Uh, I just want to be at a, at a place where I can, where I feel like I'm going to be developed into the, the best lawyer I can be. And so um, hopefully those skills that I develop will, will translate as well. But if you're interested in sports law, know that within corporate law it is it is it can be a little a little bit niche as far as which firms um are known for for that type of work and then another thing i would very briefly say is know which side you want to be on as well like right inevitably these big law firms are going to mostly work for the 
big, you know, for the leagues, for the, for the big money players. Um, but you can find firms and there are some out there that do work on the player side. So if you want to do that, um, certainly be aware of that. And, um, that's not to say that you can't do the other, the other side, um, or work for the other side, because I think there is value as well. And, 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 and sort of seeing that and playing that role of eventually, I guess one might say Trojan horse, just learning the strategy on the other side and, and then returning, but, um, just know that as well. And, and, and be honest with yourself if you, if you're willing to, uh, to play that side. So I know at the beginning of our episode, we started with, a you know, kind of childhood memory of, of growing up that then, um, was really formative for you. And it's something you think back upon. In ending this episode, I also kind of want to get nostalgic again <laughs> for both of you. If you could go back and talk to the past version of yourself who was just applying to law school, maybe just finished the LSAT, was writing that personal statement, what would be the piece of advice that you would tell yourself? Be gentle with yourself. I think there's so much pressure in law school. I was really hard on myself, I think. And I think that there can be spaces in law school, just in terms of the culture, um, you know, between the Socratic method and like, there are people who are cutthroat. And I think I stopped giving that weight later in in law school. And I think that's good. And now I give it none. (laughs) Um, But I definitely think I would be, give myself some grace. Um, also advice to everyone else. I did get a puppy, uh, one L year <laughs> in January. So second semester. And that really helped. <laughs> Maybe that's what I was missing this year. I just need to get a pet. <laughs> no, but thank you for sharing that. Jeff, what about you? Trusting yourself, believing in yourself. Don't let your own voice inside your head be the limit to your capabilities to your greatness it's so easy to doubt yourself and i doubt myself surely we all doubt ourselves every single day like trust yourself you know you've gotten here um you've clearly done something right and i think in many ways like we are we are the limits to our to our own greatness Don't let that voice in your head limit your potential. Thank you both for sharing that. It's really inspiring. And I resonate with everything you said, because I think, you know, after finishing one all year at Columbia, there's times where you're not gentle with yourself and there's times that you don't trust yourself. And I think hearing from both of you and relating to those experiences um, and then, you know, reaching this incredible journey of being, you know, the first Latinx editor-in-chief to now where you're pursuing your careers. It's just so inspiring. And I think really motivates me as well as, you know, now entering my 2L year and I'm sure all of our pre-law and law student listeners. So thank you for taking the time and for sharing your incredible stories.